I was listening as we were singing that song, Just a Closer Walk with Thee, and, and I just kind of wondered, what, what would we need to do to have a closer walk? What would you need to do to have a closer walk with Jesus? That's question number one. And question number two is what's holding you back? What's keeping you from doing it? You ought to walk closer with the Lord. Well, this morning we're going to talk about a picture of God's grace. We started this series six weeks ago with a story from Max Lucado. You remember? It was about a father who had five sons and four strayed from the farm. And uh, one was sent to, to gather them back in, but only one was willing to let grace take him home. Somebody shake your head. You do remember me telling you that story. Good story. Okay. Well, today I want to end our study on grace with another story from another one of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey. He tells a story about a father who had one daughter. Instead of five sons, this guy just had one daughter. Probably about equal in terms of how tough it is to raise. You know, four sons or one daughter. But this uh, family lived in Traverse City, Michigan. And the dad had a cherry orchard. But dad was a little bit old-fashioned, according to her, according to the girl. He overacted to her nose ring. She hated, he hated the music that she listened to. And she, he was always complaining about the length of her skirts. She grounded, he grounded her a few times, and she just seethed inside. And she said inside, not to her dad, but inside she said, Dad, I hate you. I hate you. And then finally one night she screamed it at her father when he knocked on the door of her room after they'd had an argument. And she just screamed, I hate you, Dad, go away. And that night, she acts on a plan that she had mentally rehearsed hundreds of times before, and she ran away. She'd only been to Detroit one time. She went there with the, on a bus trip with her youth group to watch the Detroit Tigers play baseball. But she'd read in the Detroit papers about the gangs and the violence in downtown Detroit, and she concludes that's probably the last place that her dad would look for her. Maybe California or Florida, but not Detroit. Who would run away and go to Detroit? And on her second day there, she met the man who drove the fanciest, biggest car she had ever seen. And he offers her a ride. And then he buys her lunch. And then he arranges for her to have a place to stay. You know, she was on her own. And he gave her some pills that made her feel better than she'd ever felt before. She was right all along. Her dad, her dad and her mom just were keeping her from all the fun. This was the life. The good life continues for about a month or so, two months, then a year. She moves in to live with the man with the big car. She calls him boss. They live in a penthouse. 
and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about mom and dad back home, but their lives are so boring that she can hardly believe she really grew up there. One day she saw the back of a milk carton and there was her picture on the back of the milk carton with the headline, have you seen this child? But she's so different now, she's sure that no one would ever find her. She's dyed her hair blonde, she has all this makeup and body piercing jewelry and nobody would mistake her for a child. All of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. So she starts to feel pretty safe. After about a year, the first signs of illness begin to appear and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he said. And therefore, before she knew it, she was back out on the street without a penny to her name. In order to make a go of it, she began to sell herself. But it doesn't pay much, and all the money goes to support her drug habit. When winter comes, she finds herself sleeping on the grates outside the big department stores, trying to stay warm. But sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax. Dark bands begin to circle her eyes. Her cough gets worse. And one night, as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to cry. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry, and she needs a drug fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her, shivers under the newspapers that she's piled atop her coat. And laying there like that, something jolts, a memory, and a single image fills her mind. May, spring, and Traverse City with a million cherry blossoms in bloom at once, and her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of cherry blossoms in chase of a tennis ball. Oh, God, she says, why did I leave? Pain stabs at her heart, and she's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. She calls home. She gets the answering machine. She calls home again later. She gets the answering machine. She doesn't leave a message. She calls again a third time. But she decided to speak to the answering machine. And she said, Dad and Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm going to catch a bus tomorrow to head your way. I'll get there about midnight. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it gets to Canada. The bus trip was seven hours long. And as she was driving, she began to realize there was one flaw in her plan 
What if they missed the message? What if they hadn't heard the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or two to talk to them? And even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome their shock. Her thoughts back her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech that she's preparing for her father. She's going over them and over them in her head. She says, I'll say, Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? And she says these words over and over, her throat tightening, even as she rehearses them. Because, you know, she hasn't apologized to anybody for years. As she approaches Detroit, I mean, as she approaches Traverse City, she begins to really get nervous and worried. And it pulls in to the bus stop, air brakes protesting and hissing. The driver says, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. She says, 15 minutes to decide my life. She checks herself in her mirror. She smooths her hair. She licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will even notice they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. And not one of the thousands of scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. Because there, in the concrete walls, the plastic chairs, the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, is a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmothers and great-grandmother. They're all wearing goofy hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. And out of the crowd steps her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. And he interrupts her. Hush, child. We have no time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you at home. Philip Yancey wrote that in his little book called What's So Amazing About Grace. Do you recognize the story? You recognize the story because you realize it's the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son. But I don't know about you, but I've heard the story of the prodigal son so many times this brings it to a new level. It's more real. It's something that we can look around and, and we can see us. It's a little more harder to accept as well. I didn't know this. Maybe you don't know this either, but the Jewish rabbis told a story like this. But in their version, when the younger son ran away and spent all of his father's money and comes crawling home. The father says, basically, you made your bed, you sleep in it. And sent him away. And so as Jesus was telling this story, he was telling it to the Pharisees. 
and to the tax collectors. Yeah, I've heard this one before, his audience probably thought. One day the father saw his son returning. He waited with his arms crossed. The broken down son begged his father to take him back. But the father looked away from him and said, Forget it, you had your choice. You chose to live like a pig. Now go back to your pigs. That was the way the Jewish story went. The Pharisee story went. The father turned his son away and told him he was getting exactly what he deserved. And guys, that's the story that reflects the Old Testament and the legalism of the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament says, the Old Testament law says, that a father who had a rebellious son could stone him to death. Could put him to capital punishment. Deuteronomy 21.18 If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey, his father and mother shall bring him to the elders and say, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men shall stone him to death. And that's the way the Pharisees expected Jesus' story to end. That's the normal ending. And then Jesus gave the surprise twist to his plot. He gave us a picture of the loving God of grace that we serve. And the Jewish Pharisees who were listening to the story had probably some of the same kind of reactions we may have had to the girl from Traverse City. I'm going to tell it to you again. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant, distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. And he was lost and has been found. And they begin to celebrate. Father, we thank you for your word. 
and we thank you for your grace. And Father, bless us as we look at it. In Jesus' name. Both of those stories tell us what God is really like. They tell us about the God that we serve. Because, you know, I think that the most important question in life is not, do you believe in God? A more important question is, what kind of God do you believe in? There's something just as bad or maybe even worse than being an atheist. It's believing in a God but having an erroneous concept of who he is. You can believe in God, but if you have the false concept of who he is, you're no better off than an atheist. And there are a lot of religions, there are a lot of even churches in our world that present many different pictures of God. Think about one some think. The Muslims believe that uh, the Muslim terrorists believe that God is really named Allah and he rewards them when they hijack airplanes and kill innocent people. Does God really want all the unbelievers killed if it means strapping a body, a bomb to your body and going into the crowds and killing yourself? Deism teaches that God created the world and he started it and he set it in motion, but now he sits back uncaring or unable to get involved in what's happening in the lives of individuals. Is God like that? Is God impotent to do anything about what we see? About you? About your life? About your walk? Is he just not able to do it? That's deism. I'm glad I'm not a deist. Who would want to have a God that made you and then left you? Hinduism teaches that there are a number of gods and goddesses. Brahman is the greatest God, but he's just an impersonal, all-pervasive life force that's in every person. We're all gods. New Agers teach that God is the life force in everything, and that's why they worship trees and crystals and even themselves. Is that what God is like? Is God like Allah? Is he just a watchmaker that made it and wound it up and let it go? Is he a Brahmin? Is he the good side of the force in Star Wars? You know, we pretty much reject all of those things. But there are still a lot of misconceptions about what God is like. What is he really like? There are a lot of people, probably some of the people that you know, who believe that God is some kind of mean ogre who sits on a mysterious throne watching you, just waiting for you to make a mistake. And then you can say, aha, I gotcha. I caught you. But that's not the God Jesus describes. Instead, Jesus describes a loving, compassionate God who deeply cares about you. You don't want to simply believe in God. You need to believe in the God of the Bible. And the good news is the God of the Bible is full of love and mercy and is a God of grace. In Jesus' story, the younger son got away from the father. We call him the prodigal son. Give me what's mine, he said. 
According to the Jewish custom of his day, the younger son was due to inherit one-third of, his inheritance, of the inheritance. The older brother received two-thirds. The trick of that was, according to Jewish law, two-ninths of that was already his. He could possess it while the father was alive. Um, he couldn't dispose of it. He couldn't sell it or trade it until the father was dead. So essentially what this son said to his father was, I wish you were dead. So what is yours can become mine. And we live in that kind of a society. You know, we don't live in, in a place of the prodigal son. We live in the case of the prodigal society. Uh, look at the attitudes that we have in our culture towards God and God's things. When uh, George Barna had a survey... He asked people who, what, who they believed their first responsibility was to. 52% of Americans say, my first responsibility is to myself. 41% of people who were born again, who are sitting in our evangelical churches, said that their first responsibility was to themselves. He asked them, do you believe there is such thing as absolute truth? 67% of Americans said, no, such thing is absolute truth. And, you know, this was several years ago. I suspect the, the numbers are even higher now. But the shocking thing is, is that over half of born-again Christians said there's no such thing as absolute truth. When I was a pastor in uh, New Mexico, one of our deacons was an Albuquerque City police officer. And he asked me, invited me, to ride with him one Friday night in his patrol car. What an eye-opener that was. Because, folks, he showed me the underside of the city. One side I'll never forget was a young boy standing on a street corner, maybe 13 or 14 years old. And John told me, that's a male prostitute standing there looking for a trick. I couldn't believe it. He was just a boy. He was just a little boy. But through my mind, I'm thinking, that's some father's little boy. That's some, some mother's son. Think about the joy she had when the little guy was born. And maybe there are no earthly parents that even care for him anymore. Else, why is he out at 1 o'clock in the morning on an Albuquerque street corner? But Jesus says God cares. And he wants the boy to come home to his father. Underbelly of the world describes the kind of world the prodigal found himself in. You know, we're not in that kind of a situation personally. But you know that the philosophies of the world are designed to turn us away from God. Make us think that we're more important than anything. I believe that the father could have stopped that boy if he wanted to, not giving him the inheritance to start with. He could have thrown, thrown him through the door and locked the door so he couldn't get out. Why didn't he do that? Do you remember the last time you did something stupid? Everybody go like this. Yeah, I do. 
Why didn't God stop you? Not because he couldn't. But the same reason he didn't stop Adam and even in the garden. Because part of what creating us and making us is the freedom that he gives us. And so the prodigal son found himself in the far country. At first it was good. Excitement, freedom, vitality, energy, appointments to keep, people to see, things to do, an endless dizzying excitement. You know, it, it was attractive. It was a good thing. It was, it was a, a, a great thing. But, you know, Jeremiah said, my people have committed two evils. They have, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, but they built themselves cisterns. You know what a cistern is? It's, it holds water for the, for the household, for the community. They've hewn their own cisterns, but they're broken cisterns and can hold no water. And folks, when we trade God for anything, that's what we trade Him for. That's what life is apart from the Father. That's the sin. That's where sin will eventually end. In your life or in your afterlife, that is the place where sin ends. When we leave God, that's where we end up. Eventually, everything's gone. He's feeding his hogs and glad to eat what they eat. And the reason for this story, the reason Jesus told this story, there's, there's two reasons actually, but one of the reasons is that no matter how far you think you've gone, God wants you home. He wants you to come home. If you've not gone that far, then it's closer to get there. If you've gone a long ways, it could be a long trip. But it's good to come home under those circumstances. If your son was gone, wouldn't you want him to come home? And then when he came home, when he came to his senses, is what the, the scripture says, when he came to his senses, the Greek means, the Greek word means, no, I love this, when he stopped being insane, when he just quit being insane, it describes coming out of a spiritual coma. You know what a physical coma is? Someone is just out of it. And, you know, people don't totally understand what, what a coma is, a physical coma is. There's a lot of discussion about it. You don't know when a person's going to come out. The doctor says we don't know how long he's going to last. We don't know if he'll ever come out of it or not. But if that's difficult to understand, it's more difficult to understand a spiritual coma. And the lost son was in a spiritual coma. He was lost to spiritual things. And folks, that can happen to any of us. All you have to do to fall into a spiritual coma is neglect your relationship to God. It can happen to any of us. But just like when the son comes home, the reception from the father, the making merry, the joy of coming home. The angels rejoice 
Jesus said in this passage a couple of times, over one sinner who's repented and returned to the Father. In Jewish culture, men wore long robes. And us guys may not understand, but you, you, you ladies, you understand what it's like to try to run in a long dress? You know, maybe not. Maybe you never had to run from anybody in a long dress. But anyway, it's not easy to run in a long dress. It's not easy to run in a long robe. So in order to do that, he had to lift the hem of the robe up high to keep from tripping over it. And in order to do that, he had to bare his legs. And that was unthinkable in Jewish culture for you to let somebody see your bare legs. They didn't wear shorts. And the Pharisees were indignant that that, that dad would run because he had to lift his robes to run. Men of respect never ran. It would have been embarrassing. But this father sees his son coming and he grabs handfuls of his robe and he goes running for his son. He doesn't even wait for the son to reach him. He ran to meet his son. And the scripture says, Jesus says, he hugged him and kissed his rebellious son before the son even said one word. You know, think about that for a minute. This son's been living in the pig pen. He looked bad. He smelled bad. Not exactly the kind of person you want to hug and kiss. But the father said, Oh, you're back good. Clean yourself up before you come into the house. That's not what he said. The father accepted him just as he was. And Jesus wants us to know, no matter where you are, no matter why you're there, God wants to have a closer walk with you. Just a closer walk with Him. What would it take? Simple. Get back closer to the Father. How do you do that? Well, you realize that you're not where you should be. You're not like the prodigal son. You're not like the girl from Traverse City. But we can still be spiritually insane. Refusing to allow God to be the God he wants to be in our life. But the prodigal came to his senses. He repented. He says, I will get up and go to my father. He confessed. He said, I will say to him. And he made a commitment. Make me your slave. But before you get that far, God will meet you coming home. It says... In the New American Standard, what, what I read to you, it says, and he embraced him and kissed him. The King James Version says, he fell on his neck and kissed him. The tense in the form of the verb in the Greek says, not just that he kissed him, but that he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him. Before we finish Amazing Grace this morning, I want to tell you one more story. Can I tell you one more story? Say I can tell you one more story. It's a good story. 
It's not by one of my favorite authors. Um, it's about Ernest. It was told by Ernest Hemingway in a book he wrote called Capital of the World. I've never read it. I've never read anything Hemingway wrote very, very far into it before I gave up. But this story is about a father in Spain who had a son named Paco. Now, Paco is the Spanish name Frank. So he had a son named Frank, basically. And it was a very common name. It's still a very common name in Spain and in Mexico. But Paco and his father were estranged because the son was rebellious. And the father was bitter and angry with his son, and he kicked him out. You know, Paco didn't run away. Dad kicked him out. After years and years of bitterness, the father's anger finally ceased or got low enough that he realized his mistake. And he began to look for Paco, began to search for him. No results. Finally, in desperation, the father placed an ad in the Madrid newspaper. And the ad read, Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me at the newspaper office at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Love, your father. Now, Paco, as I said, is a pretty common name in Spain. In Hemingway's story, he wrote that when the father arrived the next morning at the post office, there were 600 men, all named Paco, who were there to receive the forgiveness of their father. Our Father in heaven is a God of grace. Ain't it amazing? Grace is amazing. And that's why we sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, because we realize that it saved a wretch like me.